For we are not bold to class or compare ourselves with some of those who commend themselves, but when they measure themselves by themselves and compare themselves with themselves, they are without understanding. But we will not boast beyond our measure, but within the measure of the sphere which God apportioned to us as a measure, to reach even as far as you. For we are not overextending ourselves as if we did not reach to you, for we were the first to come even as far as you in the gospel of Christ, not boasting about our measure, that is, in other men's labors, but with a hope that as your faith grows, we shall be within our sphere enlarged even more by you, so as to preach the gospel even to the regions beyond you, and not to boast in what has been accomplished in the sphere of another. Verse 17, But he who boasts, let him boast in the Lord. For not he who commends himself is approved, but whom the Lord commends. As we read these verses, we've entered into the final portion of this very personal correspondence between the Apostle Paul and the believers in Corinth. 2 Corinthians has been, as, as I think you can tell by now, a, a very different letter, very different type of letter. It doesn't have the same doctoral impact as, for example, say the letter to the Romans or the letter to the Ephesians. It's not structured like many of Paul's letters, for example, like Colossians, which has two chapters of theology and then two chapters of application of that theology, or even Ephesians, which has three chapters of theology and then the last three chapters apply that theology to everyday situation. No, 2 Corinthians is different. It's intensely personal. In fact, it's probably, along with Philemon, the most personal and least theological of all of Paul's letters. But having said that, just because it's more personal than theological doesn't mean that the letter is not profitable to us. The Holy Spirit chose to make 2 Corinthians a part of the canon of Scripture for a reason. And if you've been tracking along carefully in this study, you've learned a few things, very practical things about comfort, about interpersonal relationships, about accountability before God and the judgment seat of Christ, about how wonderful God is to us and how we have a responsibility to be a conduit of God's grace and mercy to other people. We just studied that in 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9. That and so much more in this very personal letter. So just because it's personal and not doctrinal doesn't mean we can't learn a lot from it and have our lives changed by it. Structurally, 2 Corinthians has three divisions. First, in chapters 1 through 7, Paul explains his conduct and describes the exercise of his apostolic authority, chapters 1 through 7. And then in chapters 8 and 9, Paul encouraged the Corinthians to follow through on their pledge gift to the poor in Jerusalem. And we see that the example of giving in that passage was Jesus Christ himself. For we know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, who though he was rich, yet for our sakes he became poor, that we through his poverty might be rich. He said at the time, Paul could have probably just stopped there, couldn't he? And he would have made his case for them following through on their gift to the poor saints in Jerusalem. By the way, every one of you is a saint. You don't have to be classified a saint by any human being. God classified you a saint the moment you trusted Jesus Christ to forgive your sins 
and it grants you eternal life. So if you want to feel a little bit better about yourself today, go stand in front of the mirror this afternoon and call yourself St. Mike, St. Michael, St. Rob. And then finally, in what we're studying right now, in chapters 10 through 13, Paul defends himself and his apostolic authority. Now these chapters you're going to see as we work our way through them are going to be quite emotional for Paul. They are intense chapters. And in fact, you'll see it today and we'll see it a little bit later too, they're chapters where Paul does something that I wouldn't suggest that we try at home, not very often, and that is he uses divine sarcasm in making his point to these Corinthian believers and obliquely again to those who are his enemies that are listening in on this conversation. So these are extremely intense chapters and I think you'll find them very profitable at the same time. Paul founded the church in Corinth and as he says in our passage today he's the first one to get to that area and he had poured his life and his heart out to these folks. But shortly after he left the city problems developed. We don't know a lot about the problems but we do know that he wrote a previous letter, just that's all it's called, or a former letter, in which, at the very least, he told them not to associate with immoral people. And that's about all we know of that letter. It's really 1 Corinthians, but the Holy Spirit didn't see fit to make that former letter a part of the canon of Scripture. So he ends up writing this letter that the people don't respond quite as well as he would have liked. So a delegation, and Paul's in Ephesus at this time, a delegation from the household of Chloe come, and they, they outline several problems in the church at Corinth. Quite a few, actually. We studied those in our study of 1 Corinthians. So in 1 Corinthians, Paul is helping to clear up this series of questions that the representatives of the household of Chloe have come over to Ephesus to ask him these questions. Things like lawsuits among believers, spiritual gifts, um, how, how we're to... Uh, handle the Lord's table. Many, many things had come up. How, how do we handle uh, marriage situations? Those are all handled in 1 Corinthians. And it was, for the most part, not as well received as it should have been. There were still problems even after this wonderful letter. The apostle had written them exactly how to handle these situations, but they don't really get it. This was a tough bunch. If there ever was a bunch that an apostle probably would have liked to walk away from, this would have been about the time. After he wrote 1 Corinthians, he had already written one letter telling them not to associate with immoral people. Then he writes 1 Corinthians, the second letter, but we call it 1 Corinthians, to outline the answers to all these questions they have, mostly behavioral issues, some theological. But they still just don't seem to get it. So Paul has to make what he calls a painful visit to Corinth. We don't know a whole lot about it. We just know it wasn't comfortable for either Paul or for the Corinthians. There are times when confrontation is necessary. I don't like it. In fact, I don't know very many people who really do like confrontation. Most, most of us would walk around the block to avoid it if it's at all possible. But Paul couldn't avoid it because he was the apostle he, to, to the Gentiles. He's the apostle to the city of Corinth. He had started that church, and God gave him the responsibility not to quit on him. See, if it had just been up to Paul, I think he would have walked away. And he would have said, you know, I'm having a whole lot better response over here in Ephesus. I'm going to stay here. Or I want to get to Spain. I'm going to drop everything here, and I'm going to do whatever it takes to get further west. I want to, I want to plow new land. But he does it. He makes this painful visit. And there's every indication with this painful visit that he makes 
that the Corinthians eat him up and spit him out, just like they had done with Timothy. And he goes back to Ephesus. When he's back in Ephesus, he writes what we call, or he calls, a sorrowful letter to them. This, I think, in a way, was Paul's last-ditch effort to get through to the Corinthians. They were, a, they were a tough bunch. They were an arrogant bunch. They were a very proud bunch. Because, see, they lived in a very intellectual culture. And because they lived in this intellectual culture, they graded everybody and would maybe a little different grading system. And over time, not only the Corinthians, but the opponents of the Corinthians, who I think had whispered these things into the, the Corinthian believer's ear, you know, Paul can't speak his way out of a paper bag. He is nothing like those sophists up in Athens. You know, he can't, he can't speak his way out of a paper bag, probably can't think his way out of a paper bag, and there's not much to him as far as personal appearance either. That's the kind of stuff they were saying. And that's a low blow. Because when you start going after somebody's appearance rather than their ideas, or, or going after how they present the ideas rather than the ideas themselves, it means you've run out of arguments. So if you find yourself doing that, they call that an ad hominem argument, against the man argument. If you find yourself in discussion with other people, and you're, you're pulling out ad hominem arguments all the time, just know you lost. You've already lost the discussion. Because ad hominem arguments are logical fallacies, and they have no place in theological discussion. They didn't have any place in theological discussion in the first century, and they sure don't have any place in theological discussion today. So he writes them this sorrowful letter, and he's still in Ephesus at the time, and if you'll recall when we studied this, Paul ends up being, being forced to leave Ephesus, maybe quicker than he thought he was going to have to. There's a riot there. So Paul leaves Ephesus and goes north. He still wants to know what happened in Corinth. He had sent that letter by Titus. He's hoping Titus is going to come around and meet him. He has to leave early. Somehow he'd gotten the message to Titus. We don't know how. They'd had to leave early. So he goes up to a place called Troas, which is actually not too far from the ancient city of Troy. Troy is very difficult to, to really pin down exactly where it was, but you've heard of the Trojan War and all that, Achilles and all that. Well, well Troas is not too far from there. And when he goes up to Troas, he's really hoping that Titus is going to meet him there and give him some news about how the Corinthians responded to this sorrowful letter. But when he gets there, he's disappointed because Titus is not there. So he hangs out just a little bit, and he moves on a little further north, on into the region of Macedonia. Now, Macedonia has two primary churches that we can think, that we, we know their names. One is the church at Philippi, another is the church at Thessalonica. I, I kind of assume, since the church at Philippi was probably the stronger of those two churches, it's hard to say, I'm guessing Paul probably stopped in Philippi to fellowship and refresh himself with those believers. When he gets there, Titus meets him. Titus has been down in Corinth. He's delivered this sorrowful letter. He sees what their response is, and he makes it lickety-split up to Macedonia to find the Apostle Paul to tell him some good news for a change. The first bit of really good news he had was a result of this sorrowful letter. And then in Macedonia, since Paul's not going to make his way right down to Corinth at that time, in Macedonia, Paul sits down and pins what we call 2 Corinthians. Now this is, this is a little bit confusing, but hang in there with me. For what, the first letter that we know that Paul wrote, we don't have. The second letter that he wrote, we do have, and we call that 1 Corinthians. The third letter, we don't have. The fourth letter that he wrote, we do have, and we call that 2 Corinthians. So we know of at least four letters, maybe more, but at least four letters that Paul wrote to this church at Corinth. We have numbers 2 and 4, but we call it 1 and 2 Corinthians. And in 2 Corinthians, Paul is responding to the good news 
that Titus had given them about the response that had taken place in Corinth. Now, as you might have expected with the Corinthians and Paul by now, it was good news, but it wasn't completely good news. There were still problems there. And one of the problems that was taking place in Corinth is they had these people that had come in from outside. I'm going to call them troublemakers for the most part today. They're, they're Paul's opponents. These are probably the ones that had come in behind him, probably not the same people, but like the people that came in behind him in Galatia. They would say something, you know, like, Paul's a really nice guy, smart guy. I knew him back when we were in seminary in Jerusalem. Really bright person, but this business about salvation being by grace through faith alone in Christ alone, he's a little off on that. So Paul had to write Galatians to correct that. Well, now I think he's writing 2 Corinthians to correct some of the things that these false teachers were saying about him and then about his theology. If it was just about him, I don't think Paul would have cared so much. But when they can destroy his character, then they also can go a long way to destroying his theology. Because that's the way the word works. God expects certain things from those who will preach his word. And if they could, if they could make it seem like Paul is all in it for himself, whether he really didn't care about God or didn't care about the Corinthians, then whatever Paul said would be taken with a grain of salt. He didn't need that. So he has to defend himself. So there's some good things that, that have happened in Corinth, but there's also some things that still linger. And the things that still linger have uh, very much to do with these troublemakers. Now, the troublemakers in Corinth are not specifically identified by Paul. I frankly wish they would have been, because one of the things I love is history, and as much, as, as much hardcore historical background as we can get, it always makes me happy to do that. I wish Paul would have identified him, but he didn't. You know why he didn't? I'm going to speculate now, because we didn't need to know. If we would have needed to know for our spiritual growth, these guys would have been mentioned probably by name, but we didn't need to know. We, we, New Testament scholarship has a lot of speculation about who they might have been, but we know they came in from outside. We know they were closely associated with the church, probably in the church itself. Whether they were really believers or not, it's hard to say. When Peter talks about the false teachers in 2 Peter, it's my view that those people were actually not saved. But um, other people have different views about that. But I, I don't know about these folks. My gut is that some of them weren't saved, but they were still working in the church. And that's a shock, isn't it? Isn't it a shock that you could have people working in the church, talking theology that weren't really even saved? Well, it still happens today, believe me. These people had a lot to say about Paul's character and about his apostolic authority. Now, since they had really no way to strongly discredit his theology, they went to criticizing him. The critics of Paul were mean, evil, petty people who didn't have the best interest of the Christians in Corinth in mind, much less the best interest of our Lord. These were mean, evil, petty people. And Paul's going to go after him. Now we talked last week, actually we talked on Wednesday night about the whole thing about criticism. It was a prelude to tonight's sermon. We talked a little bit about it last week too in the first 11 verses. But I want you to see when Paul goes after him, he's going after him for a reason. He's not going after him just because his ego has been damaged. He has to go after him because they tried to damage his character. His character gets damaged, his message gets damaged. So he's forced to do this. So in the final chapters of this letter, Paul will humbly but aggressively 
defend himself. I know that that's foreign to many of our ears, for a Christian to aggressively do anything. But remember, he's humbly doing it, and he's aggressively doing it because this is not just a a philosophical discussion that's taking place at the Starbucks up in Athens at this point. This is a life and death theological discussion. So Paul has got to defend himself. If it wasn't a life and death theological discussion, I think he would have walked away. Now, In verses 1 through 11, Paul having assured the Corinthians of the reality and the potency of his apostolic authority in general, he now moves in these verses to establish that this authority of his is legitimate. For one thing, because he founded the church there. Now, that doesn't, that's not the be-all to end-all, but that's one of the things that he's going to bring up about this. These people that are coming in and giving you such a hard time, where were they in AD 52 when I came here and founded this church? Where were they? Yeah, they were nowhere to be found. So that's the first line of argumentation that he's going to give us with respect to the legitimacy of his apostolic authority is because he founded the church there. And, but most importantly, it was by God's design that he found the church there in the first place. He didn't pick Corinth. God picked it for him. So that's why he can unashamedly, unreservedly defend himself. Because God picked it, not him. In verses 12 through 18, Paul challenges these hypocritical troublemakers who've come in behind him and were commending themselves patting themselves on the back for the work, watch this, that the Lord had done through Paul. Isn't that something? They're committing themselves, they're bragging about what the Lord had done through the Apostle Paul. Almost unbelievable. They were promoting themselves while tearing down Paul. I say almost unbelievable because I really never cease to be amazed at what some people will do in the name of God. We've seen it all throughout history. How many people have been killed worldwide in the name of God? They just evoke God and do all kind of evil things to people. So that's why I say almost unbelievably that they would do that, but they were. And Paul's a bit worked up here in these verses, as is clear by how he structures the sentences. The New Testament scholar Marie Harris put it this way, the undeniably awkward syntax of parts of this paragraph is testimony to Paul's emotional intensity as he vigorously defends the territory that he regarded as home soil. His sense of irritation is made evident by the undeniable sarcasm of verse 12. Before I go any further with this, I do do want to issue you a pastoral warning. Be very careful. You might not want to try what Paul does here at home. It's kind of like be angry and don't sin. I I have a real hard time with that one, so I just try not to leave the anger part behind too. But be very, very careful with the use of sarcasm in interpersonal relationships. Most of the time it's going to fall flat on its face. Now, if you're using sarcasm and you're 100% convinced that it's sarcasm that's been driven by the Holy Spirit, then jump right on out there. And that's what Paul's doing. So Paul, Paul is not outlining this particular method of argumentation as a standard, but he does use it. And we can't get around it. He continues to address the Corinthian church at Corinth in the verses. And only obliquely is going to 
Note the presence of the intruders or the troublemakers. Something similar to what I think Jesus was doing in the Sermon on the Mount. Now, Jesus is addressing the, the Pharisaic abuse of the Mosaic Law in the Sermon on the Mount. He's, he's talking to people that are, I hate the word, but may I call them just the, lay, the laity? But there are those who are the Pharisees that are listening in on the outside to see what Jesus would say. And I think that's what's going on here in 2 Corinthians. He's addressing the Corinthian church, the Corinthian believers, the ones that he led to Christ in the first place. Those are the ones he's addressing. But he knows good and well that these troublemakers are going to read this letter too. So he's a, a, obliquely addressing the troublemakers. His use of the phrase in verse 12, we are not so bold, or as some translations say, we do not dare compare ourselves, makes the irony of this sentence obvious. It's pretty hard to miss Paul's intention here of ridiculing his opponents. For we are not so bold to class or compare ourselves. He's talking about himself and his ministry team. We're not so bold to class or compare ourselves with some of those who commend themselves. You know what he's saying? He's saying, you know, I would never, ever try to compare myself to those troublemakers. I mean, they are so far above me, I, I couldn't even enter into the discussion with them. That's what he's saying. That's what I meant about sarcasm. He's doing it right away. And, and then he goes on the last half of the verse, saying, because when they measure themselves by themselves and compare themselves with themselves, they're without understanding. You know, it's real easy to keep a standard of righteousness that you set up for yourself. If I was to set up my own standard of righteousness for me, I'm leaving out all the stuff I have trouble with. <laughs> Wouldn't you? Yeah, and I, and I would make it really, really easy for me to achieve a righteous standard. That's what the Pharisees had done earlier on in Jesus' time. This is 20 years later, but that's what they had done. They had set up this standard of righteousness, and they were calling it God's righteousness. And Jesus says, wait a minute, that's not even close you got to go way beyond that. It's got to exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, or you're never going to see the kingdom of heaven. The same kind of thing's going on in Corinth. These people were measuring themselves against themselves, and they were coming out pretty good. Have you ever done that? You know, you find yourself, you know, I'm, I'm, just, uh, I'm not perfect, but you know what? I'm a lot better than she is. I think we all have, one time or another. We might not have said it, but we've thought it. You know, well, yeah, I have my problems, but, uh, you know, at least I'm not like him. Well, I thank the Lord. I'm not like them. And the minute you start doing that, what you've started to do is exactly what the Corinthian opponents, these troublemakers, were doing in Corinth. They were measuring themselves by themselves. And they come out smelling like a rose, if that's the case. Now, in reality, if you measure yourself against the divine standard, none of us come out smelling like a rose. None of us. So we just need to get past that. Now, I'm not giving us an excuse to sin or a license to sin, none of that. But I'm giving us a, an excuse to look at ourselves objectively. And when we look at ourselves objectively, then we're going to appreciate the grace of God. But if you measure yourself against yourself, if you try to be your own standard, then you're never, you're, you're never going to match up. You'll always think that you're doing a whole lot better than you really are. We're all that way. Because it's so comfortable for us to set up our own set of standards and then achieve those and say, we did really good. But if we get into the Word itself, because it's the Word of God that's alive and powerful, it's, it's the Word of God that's sharper than any two-edged sword, 
You see, it's the Word of God that's a clinic of thoughts and intents of the heart. Have you ever thought what that meant when you read those verses? All Scripture is God-breathed and is profitable for reproof, for correction, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God might be mature, thoroughly equipped for every good work. You see, the Word of God is what gives us our standard for correction. Not our spouses, not our kids, not our co-workers, not your pastor. The Word of God's what gives you the standard. But the worst standard you can come up with is your own. So Paul in this passage, he very sarcastically places these people that he'll call super apostles later in chapter 11. These, I shouldn't compare myself with the super apostles. But that's the troublemakers that have come in. He says, I'll never, I would never achieve what they can achieve because they've achieved it by measuring themselves against their, themselves. These troublemakers have set up their own behavior as the standard of excellence. And meeting that standard, they assume they're doing really well. You know, one thing that is never going to help you, it's never going to help me, and it's never going to help you, is, is to search for anything other than truth. To believe a lie doesn't help you at all. And you know how people can do it. You have friends that love you and they'll, they'll, uh, they'll tell you really wonderful things about yourself and you, you know deep down, and they're probably not true. Uh, you you got to be careful about listening to your own press, so to speak. I think really prominent people have to be careful about that. You know who I really feel sorry for sometimes? We get aggravated with them, but I feel sorry for them. I feel sorry for people that are actors and actresses that, that have a kind of life where people fawn upon them everywhere they go. They can't go to a restaurant without the paparazzi shooting pictures. I can kind of see why they get upset. Of course, I can see why they shouldn't get upset because that's why they make so much money is because people fawn all over them. But I think they start reading their own press clippings. And they start thinking there's something that they're really not. With all due respect, I mean, that's, that's a great thing, but they entertain us. Yeah. There's a lot, of, a lot of people that are doing a lot that aren't making nearly as much as they do that do a lot more good for society than they do. But they read their own press clippings, and they start thinking they're all that. And when you start thinking you're all that, you place yourself way up here. And when you place yourself way up here, one day when you get objective, you're going to have a lot further to fall. And that's what happens to so many People. That's why you see these people uh, um, getting into drugs and, and alcohol dependence, and end up, you know, several of them have ended up with suicides. It really breaks my heart to see that. But they're reading their own press clippings. And to read your own press clippings is delusional. And it is not in your best interest ever to be delusional. It's always in your best interest to be objective about yourself. And if you're objective about yourself, you know who else you're going to be objective about? God. And if you're objective about God and objective about yourself, you're going to appreciate the grace of God. And when you appreciate the grace of God, then you start to grow. But until you appreciate God's grace, you're never going to grow. You never will. And the people that are growing the fastest and the most intensely in their Christian life are the ones that bow down before God's grace and His mercy and recognize that we're nothing without that. It's the people that think that they're just they're, they're pushing a little bit of the boat themselves. Somehow they're outside the boat and they're swimming along and pushing a little bit. Now they may say, well, I know I need God's grace. But you, you don't get God's grace and get out and push the boat too. 
It's delusional. God's word is the standard, not our systems. We cannot be our own standard. We'll never grow spiritually until we come face to face with that truth. Now in verse 13, but we will not boast beyond our measure, but within the measure of the sphere which God apportioned to us as a measure, to reach even as far as you. Paul's going to make it clear in this verse that he's going to only boast within the sphere that God established. And the boasting within the sphere that God established is not at all sinful because he's only boasting within the measure of the sphere which God apportioned. Within that sphere, and we're going to see in a minute, within that sphere he's not really boasting about himself. He's boasting about God. He's objective. He's not delusional. He recognizes that in Corinth he'd have been nothing without God. The problem is that these troublemakers think that they were all that without God. So Paul, in order to help the Corinthians, has to take down the false teachers. In verse 15, actually, he's going to put the same thought into a negative, not boasting beyond our measure. The problem, again, with the troublemakers is that they were intruding on the ministry of the apostle without any authorization from God. Now, we have to be careful here because Christians have read this passage historically and they become very territorial. I've, I've had that happen to me. I thought, you were gonna, I thought you were gonna stay on the east side of town. What are you doing in the middle part of town, having your church on Sunday? Well, that's where God put us. You know, there are no territories. It's not, it's not like some sales force where you get, this, these are your hospitals and these are my hospitals. Don't you ever come over to this hospital. You know, God's the one that decides where the territory is. And, and I, please don't take offense at this at all, but it's not intended that way in, in any way, but I love cooler weather. If I'd have chosen my own field, it'd have probably been at Aspen Bible Church or, or something, <laughs> you know. But you know what? The fact that God put me here 20 years ago confirmed to me that this is where he wanted me to be. It was Houston, Texas, and that's what it looks, I mean, that's, it seems though that's where I'm going to spend the entirety of my ministry, and I can have cool weather up in heaven someday, and that'll be fine. I can visit it someday. But that confirmed it for me. He's saying, God put me here. On the other hand, he didn't put you here. These Corinthians, he didn't put them there. So we need to be careful about territorialism. We don't want to just say, this is my territory, this is your territory. What we need to see is, who did God put where? And if he put you someplace, you stay there and you minister for him with all your heart. And that's what's happening here. But we will not boast beyond our measure. But within the measure of the sphere which God apportioned to each of us as a measure to reach even as far as you. In other words, we came to Corinth because this is where God sent us. Verse 14, for we were not overextending ourselves as if we did not reach to you. For we were the first to come even as far as you in the gospel of Christ. This tells us a little bit about the, the history of evangelism in Corinth. Paul's the one that went there first. In verse 15, not boasting beyond our measure, that is, in other men's labors, but with a hope that as your faith grows, we shall be within our sphere enlarged even more by you. Here Paul is saying, we, unlike the troublemakers, are not overreaching when it comes to our relationship with you. This is the sphere which God has set up for us. So we're not overreaching. And by the way, if one of the most common questions I get is how do I know 
if I'm in the, God's geographical will. Have you ever had that? How do I know I'm supposed to be here? How do I know I'm supposed to work at this company? Um, it's a tough thing, God's geographical will. Elliot Johnson, one of the guys that I consider one of my two primary mentors at Dallas Seminary, told me one time, I, I had an opportunity, this was when I was still in seminary, real early on, to, um, I think there were three different ministry opportunities that were placed in front of me. Um, and I said, how do I know? You know, the Lord, the Lord brought these other things and brought, the, I mean, they called me, I didn't call them, how do I know? And what Elliot said is what you'd figure Elliot would say. He said, the first thing you need to do is commit this to prayer. I mean, you need to pray about this day and night. The second thing is going to surprise you. He said, stay right where you are until God moves you. Make sure he's the one that moved you. Until then, you stay right where you are. Stay at that company that you're with. Stay in the relationship that you're with. So whatever it is, you stay right there. Unless God moves you. And I thought that was great advice. It's good advice for us too. So the first thing that we see in these verses that he's not overreaching when it comes to the relationship with them. Real quickly in verse 16, so as to preach the gospel even to the regions beyond you and not to boast in what has been accomplished in the sphere of another. Again, he's just saying this was his sphere. This is where God sent him and he's convinced of it. So he's saying also that they were used by God to establish the church at Corinth. These other guys came in after us, and they're doing the best they can to take credit for what we've done, which, by the way, is bad form, to take credit for what somebody else has done. But more importantly, he's explaining in these last four chapters that they're hurting the Corinthians in the process. That's why he has to respond at all. If nobody's getting hurt, I don't think you'd even have 2 Corinthians being written. And then he's going to say, our reward is your growth. That's totally different from these troublemakers. For the troublemakers, their reward was to see themselves elevated to a position when they walk into the restaurant, the paparazzi starts snapping pictures of them. You see this in today's culture, too. Beware of Christian celebrities. Beware, because there's only one real celebrity in Christianity. And that's not me, and it's not you either. And it's not Chuck Swindoll, and it's not Tony Evans, and it's not Ed Young, and they'd be the first people to tell you that. It's not Billy Graham. He'd knock you over to tell you that he's not the celebrity in Christianity. It's Jesus Christ himself. So you see, these people had as their reward that they became more well-known. Paul has as his reward that the people that he ministered to grew. That was his reward. You see, he's already talked about it the first part of this letter, the judgment seat of Christ, and how everyone's going to be held accountable. And so since everyone's going to be held accountable, Paul's not really that concerned with how famous he became during his lifetime. You know, we think about the judgment seat of Christ, I have, and you talk to people about it, and they say, well, I wonder what this person's going to get at the judgment seat. I wonder, boy, they'll be there. Well, yeah, they're all celebrity Christians. They probably will be. But I happen to think some of, the, some of the celebrities in eternity won't be the ones that are celebrities now. I think some of the ones that are, will be celebrities in eternity, and I put that in air quotes, of course. I think those are going to be the ones that ministered in anonymity right now. People who visited nursing homes, sat by people's bedside and prayed with them, or wrote encouraging notes, or sat in their own apartment or their home and prayed for people all day long. And were very faithful servants of the Lord. 
those people will be elevated in eternity where these opponents in Corinth, if they were true, true believers, will be downgraded in eternity because that's why they were doing it. So this is, gives us a glimpse into the Apostle Paul. His reward was their growth. He saw satisfaction when he observed them growing spiritually. And one of the great satisfactions that he sees is to see the work multiplied. And that's one of the great satisfactions that I see in ministry here at this church. It's when I, when I hear of all the ministries that you're doing outside this church. Yeah, a lot of you have ministries within the church. That's true. But so many of you have ministries outside this church. And they might not even be formal ministry. But that makes me feel real happy. Because it tells me that you're growing. And I'm not taking credit for that growth. Please don't, please don't misunderstand that. The Holy Spirit is what grows you. But if you can come out of this church, it, it thrills me to no end when I see people come in this church and then end up leaving this church and starting other ministries. I think that's fantastic. When somebody comes into our church and then we help them over a period of five or six or seven or eight years and they go out and have other ministries. That's good. That's not bad. That's where I get my jollies from is to see other people prospering in the plan of God. We should multiply ourselves. And that's what he's talking about here, too. He would love nothing more than to see the Corinthians send out missionaries of their own and to spread the gospel. And then finally, in verses 17 and 18, But he who boasts, let him boast in the Lord. For not he who commends himself is approved, but whom the Lord Commends. You'll probably recognize verse 17 as a quotation from our scripture reading this morning that Alex did in Jeremiah chapter 9, verse 24. He presents a general principle that he's carefully applied to himself. His boasting is in the Lord, for whom he waits commendation. He's already talked about this back in chapter 5. Everybody's going to be evaluated. He knows he'll be evaluated, just like you will, just like me. All of us will be evaluated on what we did with the life that we were given. What did we do with the opportunities that we were given? I don't believe that evaluation is going to be specifically about sin at all. Of course, now it may be about failure, so sin may be a part of a broader picture. But it's not going to say, hey, listen, I know what you did. I remember what you did there. No, it's going to be really more like, what did you do with what I gave you? Were you faithful to me on the whole? So he knows he's going to be judged in that way. That's what verse 18 is about. If you're going to commend yourself, you're not going to be approved. It's the one the Lord commends that's approved. Not the one that's on the cover of Christianity Today. And that doesn't mean everybody's on the cover of that magazine. It's not good. I'm, I'm just saying it's not the editors of Christianity Today that get to decide who's going to get the well done at the judgment seat of Christ. Christ decides that. And you have a lot to do with it, too, by how faithful you live your life. And what he's saying is right, right up, I mean, it's right through the heart, these false teachers or these troublemakers in Corinth, they're not going to get the commendation they think they're going to get. It's that little-known, little anonymous believer that's doing what the Lord wants them to do day by day, no matter what your, your position in life. Sometimes we get the false idea that if I'm really going to get a well done at the judgment seat of Christ, then I need to go into ministry of some sort, or formal ministry like pastoral ministry, or women's ministries, or, or evangelistic ministries. No! If you want to receive a well done at the judgment seat of Christ, you do whatever you're doing as unto the Lord every single day. 
If you're designing a bridge, design that bridge as unto the Lord. If you're teaching in elementary school, teach those kids as unto the Lord. If you're an attorney, then do your job as unto the Lord. Whatever it may be, you do it as unto the Lord. If God has blessed you with the opportunity to stay home and raise children, don't let the culture make you think that that's somehow not as important as the person who decided to go into a profession. Don't let the culture set the norms and standards. God sets these standards. Jesus Christ is the perfect judge. He has all the facts. And there will be a day of evaluation for all of us, these troublemakers and for Paul. And that's the evaluation that Paul really values. That's the one he's looking forward to. That's the one that matters to him. That evaluation will shine the light of day on everything. So you don't have to be concerned that somebody missed it when you did something nice for somebody else. You know, you, you might have even done so many nice things for somebody else. Somebody comes up to you years later and says, you know, you were really sweet to me. And you think, I forgot all about that. I hope God didn't. He didn't. He, he's keeping the record. You, you just keep going. You just keep doing what he wants you to do. Day by day, moment by moment. You just keep serving him. He's not going to lose track of you. He's not going to lose track of anything that you've done for him. So you don't have to keep a record. He'll do it. And if you find yourself keeping a record for, for th anything other than just so you, you kind of remember where you've been to or what it is you've done, you're, it's not really what you want to do. Let him keep the record. He'll shine the light of day on everything. Paul knows that he's going to be vindicated then so he doesn't have to fret now over the accusations by the troublemakers. What they've done to him, again, is not his primary concern. It's what they've done to the Corinthians as a result of what they've done to him. That's his primary concern. At the same time, though, he knows he's going to be vindicated. But if you're going to brag about something, shouldn't it be Jesus? Brag's not the best word, probably, in our, in our uh, language for this, because brag kind of has a negative connotation. But you know what we've been doing this morning? We've been bragging about Jesus Christ. And when you leave here today, the highest compliment you could give me is to walk out of here and say, isn't God great? Isn't he wonderful? Didn't, isn't Jesus Christ phenomenal? That, that's the best thing we could do when we leave here today. When we open our, or open our mouths to sing and words come out of our mouths and, and we praise God, that's boasting in God. That's what he's talking about here. So it's okay to brag about God. It's okay to brag about Jesus. I'm really proud of him, to put it mildly. If there's something you want to brag about, it's brag about Jesus Christ and what it is he did for us. I love the way that Max Lucado put it. He said, the maker of the stars would rather die for you than live without you. And that's a fact. So if you need to brag, brag about that.